Welcome to Dispatches from Mount Kaz, Conversations from a Creative Community. In today's episode, Albert, Christina, and Chris talk about Meow Wolf origin story, which documents the rise of Meow Wolf from an artist collective in Santa Fe, New Mexico, to self-sustaining permanent installation with their House of Eternal Return and their projects beyond. You can pay to watch the film yourself for some of the context of this conversation on their website. There'll be a link in the show notes. Also, I noticed it was in the in-flight entertainment on an airplane recently, so if you're planning any future travels, keep an eye out for it. Unfortunately, we lost some of the beginning of the conversation to technical issues. What remains is an exploration of art-making, political responsibility, and collective organizing through the lens of this film. Enjoy. For people who haven't seen the film, let's describe what Meow Wolf and the House of Eternal Return is. So Meow Wolf is an art collective that started in Santa Fe among people who didn't really find themselves having a place in the institutional art world. Uh, these were kind of young, weird artists who just wanted to make strange stuff with each other. And so back in 2010, they started collectivizing and building installation pieces together. If you're involved in immersive theater or immersive installation work, um, it's gotten a lot of good uh, attention recently for making this giant kind of uh, adult amusement park-like space. It's this huge installation that's like a bowling alley with a house inside of it, which is uh, the House of Eternal Return. Yeah, and and Meow Wolf, the collective, isn't just the House of Eternal Return, not just what's in the bowling alley in Santa Fe, right? Because they do installations and stuff in lots of different places, and they had different projects. So the the movie goes into some of that history Mm -hmm. and the projects that started off. Uh, So a couple years ago, uh, you and I, Christina, went to visit Santa Fe with some other friends to visit Meow Wolf, which we had heard about for a while before that. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about what that trip was like and what it was like to see or to actually visit the House house of Eternal Return? How will we describe the, like, Meow Wolf aesthetic? (laughs) Uh, Neon trash. (laughs) (laughs) It's contemporary. It's punk. Uh, It's definitely very uh, trash-oriented. But I think of this kind of style as very punk. Yeah. Um, Just kind of cobbling things together. The experience is like rummaging through someone's house <laughs> mm-hmm. in a voy- voyeuristic way. Yeah. And it's almost like as you rummage through that house, you find all these little secrets that lead into like real spaces mm-hmm. that you walk into, right? Yeah. Like you're not just uh, digging through the papers, but the papers tell you that if you open the refrigerator door, you can like walk into it and find a portal to another place. Yeah. And you actually do walk into a portal and then you find like a interdimensional space agent, a travel agency mm-hmm. that leads you to all these different spaces that are fully built out and uh, life sized. You stepped into a different world. Being in those environments made you feel like magic was possible in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like a cross between an installation piece in a museum and an escape room and a, an amusement park. Yeah. <laughs> I think that kind of captures the the idea of it, like the experience of going through it. It's hard to get a sense of House of Eternal Return because it is a an immersive piece, right? Walking through the rooms and going through the fridge portal, like those are really hard to capture in film. 
And maybe the film does a better job capturing the aesthetic than it does like an immersive experience. But that's a that's a whole other episode and question of like how to document these kind of things. So let's talk a little bit about why we want to talk about Meowulf and what influence it's had on us. It, it kicked off an idea for us of like what it could look like to build a space uh, where where installation and narrative was embedded into mm-hmm. into every piece that was involved there, into every or every item on the walls and uh, and all the text that was available. We really kind of Im- started imagining uh, how how every house could really bring the stories from that house onto the surface. Mm-hmm. And as we were planning on coming here. We started thinking about what what does having some more space uh, in Oregon afford us compared to the fairly minimal amount of space that is even attainable in the Bay Area without paying loads of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and thinking about like installation art within houses and inviting people and artists to do installations in this. At the time, we were dreaming into an unbuilt house. And thinking of like narratives that might go on top of that and and just dreaming a bit. And so it was a really inspiring space to visit. And the messages that they carry with them, I think, are really powerful and really interesting. And that's what the film tries to explore a little bit, or at least that was one of the things that we went into the film looking for. And what follows is a conversation with Christina and Chris Dernan and myself, who all went to see the film with some other friends and uh, what our response and reactions to that film were. It was a story that the documentary filmmakers told, right? And they needed a protagonist and they needed a story arc that felt satisfactory. And that didn't, and the only language and only metaphors they knew were capitalism, right? And the market. And this is a success story because they got enough money to keep making art, right? It was interesting because they, at the screening, they showed the, um, the little Q&A afterwards, which I thought was pretty boring, but it did help me see, it helped me meet the filmmakers and it helped me understand, oh, that was a lens that they were telling the story and they didn't really get it. Like for me, if I were going to tell the story, it would have been a slightly different movie and it wouldn't have ended with, this is going to be entertainment and this is going to be like a billion billion dollar company, right? Like that quote. And they left out all the stuff about how Male Wolf is mm. now turning around and doing DIY what do they call it? DIY. They have a DIY art spaces grant uh, yeah. for people to, you know, upgrade their, their spaces or pay the rent or whatever. Yeah, annual. So like, but just like to give back to the community to fuel that, like what you're saying, like fuel that work in all these smaller places around the country, and to like build that community of weirdos and like keep doing the weird thing. I think there's a lot there that got unsaid. What story would you have told? Just that, like it was, I think it was, it's like, I think there's a lot of integrity to how they're continuing to operate as a collective. And I would actually, like, I have a lot of questions about how are they moving forward as a collective within the structure of having a CEO and having business direction now? Like, are their meetings the same? Like, I have a lot of process questions. And then that other story of like, to me, the success is that they are taking their monetary success and turning that back towards the community. And they're incubating 
other spaces like them. And they're that beacon of light, they're inspiring other spaces like them, right? And I would have maybe shifted that spotlight instead of being like, here's male wolf. Maybe the last 10 minutes of the film was like, here are all the new male wolves that are popping up, mm-hmm. right? Like, where where are they? Who yeah, are those and, people? and who are they bringing into it? Yeah. And like, what, are, what who are the people who uh, who they've supported and like share their values that uh, that get to happen or that that get to uh, do more because male wolf is is uh, is around. What did we each like? How were we inspired by the film, or what do we take away from the film uh, of male wolf origin stories? Sure. What I took away from the film was the importance of, I think, artists thinking outside of having to exist in your larger cities, New York mm-hmm. and LA and Chicago and all right. those places. That it seems like it's like, well, hey, if you're going to be an artist and you're going to make it, you got to go to the big metropolises or you don't have a chance. And I found myself a lot in the movie thinking about the DC hardcore scene when they're just like, there was no DC punk scene. It was just like, you know, when you grow up, if you want to, you know, turn 18 and be a punk musician, you got to go to New York. It's like, well, why don't we just do that here? And that was basically the birth of, like, U.S. hardcore. It was out of D.C. with Bad Brains and Minor Threat and all of them. That they're just, we don't want to leave. We want to stay here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, D.C. Is, is a larger city. But, I mean, it's good to see groups of people getting together in a place like Santa Fe, smaller areas, and creating things that don't exist in New York or L.A. and San Francisco. And we've talked about repeatedly how, I mean... I think more and more that's going to happen because it just costs so much to stay in a city. And unless you just come from millionaires or stumble upon millions, how are you going to have the time and the space to create and not have to worry about bills and debt and all? I mean, I've read numerous, numerous artists talk about how they're surviving on credit card debt just to to do what they love so they can live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn or whatever. So I'm very excited to see that, and I want to see more of that. I want to see as much of that as possible, which is why I'm super pumped about what you guys are doing, because that's what you're doing, you know, and in a town of 55,000 or whatever Albany is, um, you know, creating a space that will only exist in Albany. It won't exist in Seattle or San Francisco or any of that. And what I've found, at least in my experience, is that there are people, well, amazingly talented mm-hmm. individuals everywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean... You know, just because you live in Chicago doesn't mean you're really talented. Or just because you moved to New York doesn't mean you're really talented. They're they're everywhere. They're everywhere just looking for a place to show what they do. I was talking to someone in L.A. a while back, and they were saying, like, their, their argument was, like, even if there's a lot of people around, like, there's a, there's a bigger density, and, like, that kind of allows more of the really talented people to mingle. And, like, but, like... It feels like the whole the, the whole framework that that argument comes from is like one that like things have to be like really really the best in the world for it to be interesting or meaningful and that's like total bullshit. Um, and two, it's like we just got to do the work to like uh, to to organize the communities. I, I agree that there's uh, that there's like tons of talented people around, you know, and and maybe it's going to be like fewer, but there's it's a smaller place, and like you don't need to do as much, and so you just get everyone together and do it. And and skills that we're that we're often lacking, or tools that we're often lacking, is like the space that we gather around, the organizing tools for for a community. 
if we can apply that, which is something that like Christina and I have been uh, have, have done a lot in the last couple of years, if we can apply that to a place like here, then we don't we certainly don't need to go to places where like we'll just accidentally bump into things more. Let's just organize a home and like find other talented people around and like make what we can out of it. Like it just it, it means that we have to put we have to we have to work harder at or at like bring people together at making people feel comfortable at, at collaborating and like and creating projects together but that's really worthwhile work and that's the work that it takes to like uh, make a scene and make a society like i think maybe there's like some kind of box of i can't do creative stuff because i'm not in the big city but once you break that mm-hmm. then it's like wide open <laughs> there's also a narrative of like the uh, of the genius like loan artists right, right. which is or the, the lie or other um of of having to like find the the geniuses and as opposed to like in Santa Fe, like just building a scene of, uh, of people. They, they don't exist as like, uh, you know, this person is like the super genius of Meow Wolf that makes everything work. Or Meow Wolf is like a, a collective of like a bunch of geniuses and they, don't, and they don't portray it that way in the film either. They portray it as a collective like all the time. It's like literally collective. Yeah. And then that's what I took away from the film is like I really appreciated all the like boring meetings they showed footage of and like them talking about how it's just like because it's a hundred percent thing, you're just sitting in meetings for hours and hours trying to figure out what's next because you need to come to come consensus. And like we don't have a lot of models of that and we don't have a lot of examples of that and I want more. That's what I'm hungry for is like how are people doing collective organizing and where I look is like speculative fiction like Octavia Butler and I'm looking at you know how do Catholic sisters pool collective economy and use collective money in their in their institutions and you know there's examples and models out there but we don't they're not in our mainstream culture and that's what I took away from the film and was inspired by. I've experimented with that with our shows Mm -hmm. in our community Mm -hmm. because ever since the beginning more than just wanting to like bring artists into town that I wanted to see because my cars are crappy so I can't like (laughs) drive to Portland and Eugene all the time was just an experiment social societal experiment Mm -hmm. was a how far can we take this without any money Mm-hmm. How far can we take it without a Facebook page or without social media? Like, I just want to see yeah. what happens if these are kind of the ground rules that are laid because right. everywhere you look says it's just not going to happen. Right. Yeah. And as it got bigger, then the next part was to me to constantly, constantly reaffirm that there is no leader. There's mm-hmm. no leader. This is just a platform that we're going to use and everybody can play and we're all going to just do whatever we want. Four years into this, I've started coming across like some ideas that I haven't confirmed are true but definitely I think are interesting and one is that to a degree does the hierarchical model just happen naturally so you have a certain goal and it just seems that whoever's willing to put the most time and effort into that goal just naturally rises to the top and people even if they're told that's not the case still start to look at those that have spent more time more effort is to tell me what to do mm-hmm. what do i do tell me what to do we've gotten to the point now even though i'm not comfortable with it whereas i mean we're doing bigger shows we're doing shows in you know four eight hundred seat theaters and stuff that i'll start talking and i'll be like but you know like there's no leader to this and they'll be like no shut up you're the leader yeah. you are the leader whether you want to admit that to yourself or not 
or whether you don't believe in it or not, it doesn't change the reality of this situation. And I don't know if I believe that or not. But I that's disagree. What I disagree. Yeah, I think it's bullshit. <laughs> So uh, why do you think they say I think that? it's bullshit because uh, I think we also don't have language and metaphors for alternative kinds of, uh, of organizational structure. We, in our culture, we pretty much only talk about like this kind of hierarchical model mm-hmm. or we describe everything as like chaotic anarchy. We, we tend to pretty much like put those on a binary, right? And like there's nothing in between. And I actually, I don't even think the spectrum is like is, is relevant. What about like horizontal leadership? I've seen issues of that like in Argentina. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think. What I'm trying to say is that like, even if you take a position where you are uh, you are uh, suggesting to people what they what they should do because they're looking for guidance, that doesn't need to be a hierarchical model. Mm-hmm. Hierarchy means power. It means control. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be hierarchical when you stop saying that there's not a leader and you insist on like you know being a leader, mm-hmm. um, or you know when uh, when someone uh, wants to come in and feel empowered and offer their uh, work or their contribution and you shut them down because like you are the leader. Like hierarchy is about control. So what I thought of was in a lot of organizations that don't have hierarchy, instead of saying we don't have leaders, they say we're leaderful. So like everyone's a leader. Um, And that idea of someone being a leader isn't a static thing. Um, And the other image in my head is there's this improv game where you're all covering the space and then sort of there's some group things that can happen, right? So like everyone might freeze or everyone might like stand against the perimeter of the room and everyone might like start going again, right? Like there's like certain things that the group can do. And once the group is attuned enough and you're sort of listening to each other, sort of the the game is, okay, if you see someone stop, you stop. And then eventually the whole group stops, right? And then if you see someone break and start moving again, you start moving, right? And so like anyone in the group can start that motion of, okay, we need to form our perimeter. And then anyone can break that, right? So like there's different leaders at different times and to be in, to play that game was really powerful to realize that we're listening to each other and like sometimes I step up and say, okay, let's do this thing. But then I'm also listening and so there's other movement happening and then I follow that, right? Yeah, like I said, it's not a static thing and leadership can shift over time. So I think it's maybe in your situation of like, what are those times where other people can lead, you know, a section or a thing and feel that same sense of like, okay, you're leading now and call, be able to like own, have that ownership of the group or the event or the thing to be able to step into that. So do you think it's just that we don't have the word for it? Maybe. I mean, I think, it, I think it's a big part of it. Yeah. I, I really do. So think there's a different like, word for so, for example, I sit down with the people that run the Majestic. Mm-hmm. They're like, we want to do this festival. It's like, okay. They're like, let me tell you what has to happen. Because mm-hmm. we've done two of them. So. Mm-hmm. This is the, the staff of the Majestic? Yeah. yeah. The guy that runs it. He's basically like, looking at me. He's like, you need to find a group of people that can handle certain things. But you're the one that's just kind of kind of be over the top, the watch and everything, because you've got the most experience and you've done this the most, and then they can come to you and report to you when stuff's going on, and then you can either, you know, fix it yourself or give advice on how they fix it. 
in that model, as long as I'm not exercising power, would that be what would be a different word for leader? Because that is, to a degree, at least if you look at the definition, still a leader of sorts, right? Let's adjust, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, we're not, let, let's not reduce it to this idea that, like, oh, if we have words, like, you know, things are going to be different. We, words represent things, right? Words reflect that we have a way of talking about something that is different. If all that we have to talk about it is groups of people need leaders, uh, leaders suggest hierarchy, hierarchy means power, hierarchy means control, then any time that someone gives a uh, like gives an order, command, recommendation, suggestion, whatever, and then someone follows it, then we fall into patterns of, of control, right? We fall into patterns of, uh, of of power. Someone might someone who thinks that to receive an order or anything <laughs> is uh, is being is, is like kind of being subjugated uh, is not going to be able to see how they can still get a suggestion, but also they can give a suggestion. Language reflects what models we have. There are, I think, models that are, that are outside of the relationship of controlling leadership. Like Christina suggests, some of them are, are about everyone having, uh, having input, everyone having say, everyone having the, the, the opportunity to, to take up a leader, leaderly kind of roles. Part of me wondered, I mean, because that was the whole, like, Wittgenstein philosophy, was how it does control you, you know, because it's like the minute you say leader, you automatically subconsciously start attaching things to that. So, I mean, to have a different word for that by his standard would be exactly what they need, which I would too, because it opens up more to it, where it's like, yeah, you know, because, I mean, the fundamental question is, is it the language that makes somebody think that? Like, a leader tells someone what to do. This person just told me what to do and told these other people what to do, too. So that must be the leader. Leader yeah. means all these things. That must put me in a subordinate role. This means yeah. all these different things. Yeah. Or is there something innate about just the human psyche that in a lot of people, they just kind of naturally fall that role. I mean, I, w- I would argue that people want to be free just as much as they want to be controlled, right? Like, I, I think that you can't, you can't, like, simplify it to the point where it's like, okay, well, I know that humans have this one impulse, therefore, that is all of humanity. Okay. Like, I think that sometimes we do want to, like, feel uh, like we're serving something, and sometimes we want to feel like we, uh, we're, we're totally free, and sometimes we want to feel like we're, uh, we're you know, we're, we, have, we have power. Right, but those things don't need to define our entire like social structure, and they certainly don't mean that every social structure needs to follow a certain pattern. Um, I think that language is reflective more than it is effective. I think it reflects the kind of culture that we have, and so when we are in a culture that only does things a certain way, or like that that most commonly does these things a certain way and like teaches uh, a certain kind of way of being, then uh, we're going to reflect it in a certain kind of language. And I think if you want language to play with, things that have come up in my and Albert conversations is like, one is thinking about like how theater production does it and how like stage managers or producers are, you know, they're maybe a point person, but they are sort of in service to everyone they're working with. And they're sort of like, there's still a lot of like, stage managers like coordinating everything, but the person, the people they're coordinating still have a lot of autonomy power to do what they think is best in their role, right? Uh, Administrators, facilitators, those are other ways to talk about the kind of people who help make things that are complex with like many people work 
And oftentimes we'll say, oh, you need to be, you need to like uh, have leadership skills or whatever. And then, you know, it's true. I think leadership skills are like social skills, right? They're like the ability to, uh, to hang out with people and make them feel good and like, and, and want to uh, collaborate and want to, uh, to work together. If you say leadership skills as the ability to manipulate people and control them in a way that they do what you want to do, then yeah, you're like exercising power through leadership. Um, but if you're saying that it is a, a way to like help a, a complex system like work smoothly, you know, administration is like is, is another term for that, and civil servants and like that. And that those are things that ex, uh, explicitly try to lower the uh, the status. It's an intentional uh, attempt at, at undermining authority so that we, in our language, try to resist the opportunity for the person who's like, who has a lot of power to use that power and abuse that power. I mean, we can do it through language and culture, perhaps. What did you take away from the movie, Albert? I was really interested in seeing the way that the history of, of this organization happening, you know, starting from something that was small and kind of chaotic that was really free form and you know hinged on on like these ideas of, of anyone can contribute and everything is like is welcome the sense of uh, of, of playfulness and, and relative freedom that i saw in, in early on that, that seems like everyone even at the end still gravitated toward and like cared about uh was really important to me and i don't i don't think it's that important to me to look at how successful they are now and like you know that business model stuff because like some people will say that like it's important to have like a big aspiration to like shoot for but that's not really how i think i think that you know most of the people who are watching this film are going to be more in the stages of they, of what they were when they were at the beginning which is like mm -hmm. artists who are kind of on the outside who uh who are trying to figure out like where to make their place or how to make their place in in a world that doesn't seem to be that receptive to what they're doing and the answer I see uh, that they found, and that I find too often, is that you don't need a whole institution to support you when you can support each other. Mm -hmm. When you can gather people around you and make, the make everything you have available, available to each other. You know, they had, they had a house. Uh, that, that many of them lived in that they could like just do stuff and fuck around with. They mined for trash that people didn't care about and use that to make art when they're when, when resources are, are slimmer. And they combined their like resources uh, to buy a cheap place that or rent a cheap place that they could that they could fuck around with and like do whatever they wanted. And like that kind of energy I think is like it generates more. Rather than uh, giving your energy away to like some institution that's going to put restrictions on you and exercise power over you collaborating exploring together and and sharing i think generates more energy to just to do the things uh i don't have an answer and it is a well-taken point that like eventually you know you're gonna run out of shit to share if you like, don't make any money <laughs> I just like costs when you 100 say, bucks a month to rent a yeah. space then like you don't need to have that much just like i guess get out know, of the big cities <laughs> yeah get out of the big cities and like find a an opportunity that works for you well, and i like when uh, you said on twitter or somewhere after the film too around like i think it's like like always keeping that chaos around even when there's structures and business models and things the tension of those things and the play and dance of those things that's like what's really interesting yeah i was curious to see and i almost wanted to and i brought this into one of our meetings too because people would kind of fall away and come back and mm -hmm. fall away come yeah. back and i so i was just really curious as to why you know like mm -hmm. what 
we all have a certain motivation as to why we're present and why we're choosing to do what we do at any present moment. And artist collectives do not have usually a very uh, long lifespan. Mm-hmm. Movements and stuff flip really quickly. Yeah. And I think a lot of that can be boiled down to why each artist is there in the first place, you know? So it's like, I would have been really curious as to what the motivation was. Because, I mean, to me, I know what my motivation is, why I continue to put forth the effort to book shows and do stuff. And it's to build community and give people, I mean, that, that I can relate to them on a ton with. Because if you're a noise musician or that, it's very hard to find a place to play. For some reason, Corvallis, of all places, is totally into it. But Portland, Eugene, all these places, if you don't have guaranteed headcounts, if you can't guarantee a certain amount of money for the venue, which it can't and probably won't, you're out of luck. So it's strictly for the community. You know, I love people, so meeting new people and being able to hook them up with other people so they can go off and do their things. But I'm always curious as to, with Meow Wolfen as well, I asked everybody in my meeting, I was like, why, why are you here? You know, why do you keep willing to show up? Because the answer to that question is going to be the answer as to whether you keep showing up or keep investing time into this or not. Yeah. You know, and if you don't, that's fine. But don't waste your time. You know, I mean, be honest with yourself as to why you're doing these things. That, and I think that's that's one of the reasons that I'm talking about it being like, not a, it can't be about like guilt or duty or whatever, mm-hmm. you know. I don't think that applies specifically to noise, but like uh, you know, we got to make it out of a sense of like uh, of of self generating energy, of uh, of of joy and desire. We kind of step into these spaces because creation makes us feel free, because because we uh, don't have, or because like it, you know, I think I think making art is uh, tends to be um, a place where you can feel more more liberated than than any other part of your life in a, in a society like ours. And to be able to recognize and offer those kinds of spaces and those kinds of feelings in a community is what will make it a community that, uh, that is able to come together, work together, last a little longer, and then have something to show for it when it eventually falls apart as everything else. <laughs> so my one, I guess I'd say, critique of Meow Wolf was I couldn't help but when I was watching the movie think of uh, this quote I heard from Nina Simone. Do you know Nina Simone? She, who said that if you're going to create art, it has to say something. And she meant in a political realm because that's what she was dealing with in a day-to-day life. Yeah. And I couldn't help but feel sometimes through the movie that it was a distraction. Mm-hmm. It's this whole fantasy world, you know, you pay to go into, how many people can afford to do that, and... Are there are larger issues we should be looking at? I mean, I think I think they didn't focus on that in the movie. Like, you can make a lot of different kind of arguments. Like, first of all, right? Like, compare that to noise. What are you really saying with noise? And I can see what you're saying with noise. You know, you're, with noise, you're saying that like we can experiment on the edge of what is music and what is performance, and like kind of allow creators to uh, to really push uh, a kind of playfulness with like the sonic realm. And and I think that's really that sometimes that's inaccessible for the for for many audience members, and the same thing is going to be true with immersive installations. That said, you know I went in. I think one of, one of my favorite pieces in there is like it's really subtle. It's like you walk. There's just one alleyway that feels like this kind of almost like cyberpunk like uh, like 
uh, alien Tokyo kind of alleyway. Uh, so it's like really tall and narrow and has a bunch of like weird displays in it. And uh, there's this one little kiosk that has like a bunch of like alien language on it. And if you like press buttons, like you'll pop up a quote. Like some of the quotes are like really absurd and some are kind of like pseudo-spiritual and some are like uh, are, are like super subversive. And, like, kids are walking around these kind of places, you know? They're not, like, explicit. Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, like, all art forms, like, particular noise artists where, like, the music doesn't say it, but their booklets and stuff are nothing but political Mm -hmm. manifestos. So they get that idea apart with language rather than auditory, and it's just, like, a complete package. You know, you can have a punk band that's Mm -hmm. talking about issues. You can have a punk band sitting around talking about how bored they are every day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I would I would argue that the punk band talking about how bored they are every day is making a political statement. They're making a statement about you know they might be making a statement about how like uh, like the suburban life isn't really like cultivating or nurturing for a uh, for a a young creative person who wants to explore the world and like understand the world. And then that's an important thing to say, right? Because it's important for I think like other people to hear that that's like a shared feeling. It's it's just that it takes all all kinds of this stuff right like every every dimension and uh you like political like specifically political art is really important also but you could argue that like that's the only thing that's important uh but i think if you lost all the other stuff you would lose a lot of the culture that we have everything is political and if we uh approach it all from a a point of view of like our personal politics we will do them in the ways that that affect the world you know and affect the people around us you know hopefully toward influencing the things that we believe in or at least bringing out the fact that these things aren't available to everyone yet that's kind of the delicate line i think an artist walks that wants to raise awareness is because if you bludgeon someone over the head with it yeah. over and over again most people just end up getting burned out and walk away yeah. but if you don't if you just keep writing punk songs about being bored, I mean, how many people just get apathetic, you know? There has to be a bridge to cross somewhere there where it's like, yeah, you're bored, but what are you going to do about it? Or what can we do about it? Yeah. No, I think it's very important for each artist to try to be as open and real with themselves as possible to find the medium and message that works best for them that they feel they can do the best to convey because if you try to force yourself to do something that doesn't feel natural then it's just going to kind of come out as garbage anyway and people aren't interested anyway i think at least me personally just speaking of myself from my artistic perspective um i mean i feel like i come from a place of privilege Mm -hmm. you know i'm a white male come from a middle class background you know it's like i personally feel Mm -hmm. if i'm not doing something to try to raise awareness or to to try to do things of that nature that I'm just being selfish. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I do feel that. Like, I mean, I feel that I have to, if I'm going to spend my time and energy on art, I have to do things that almost by nature are going to be political to a degree, whether that's yeah. growing community, whether that's doing and organizing like subsur- subversive things that really make people kind of either question authority or just question the status quo or things like that. It's like, I mean, I feel like if I'm not spending my time doing those things, that I'm just abusing my privilege. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I do feel that. Well, I guess it's the question of, like, uh, what, what actions count, right? 
you know, like building community accounts. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. And I think that what I'm hearing too is that it's all a process. And if you're doing that openly and with awareness and like with as much intention and reflection and communal accountability as you can, that's where you find your path, right? But maybe the critique or the warning or the like vigilance is against like, it's really easy to co-opt all of these things, mm-hmm. right? It's really easy to start off doing one thing and then have capitalism push you into shoulds or push you into like political stuff or push you into entertainment or push you into commodifying it or like whatever those forces, you know, and then you're, you're operating from a less authentic place. And that's what I'm hearing in your two conversation. Yeah. Chris, tell people like what you're about here and how to find your stuff and how to join your community or what, I don't know. What do you you want to tell people? Sure. I just organized experimental music events. It started out as noise music because no one I knew that played noise had a place to play. And lucky enough to find Interzone. Bill's a great guy. He let us do our thing. I didn't really expect for it to be more than, I don't know, a show or two. And then people just kind of started showing up. That's one of the grand lessons of this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think is that you know, if you can give people a spot uh, and you just keep going, <laughs> people are going to show up. A and O. And if you don't let, uh, you know, uh, crowd size affect yeah. your uh, overall motivation, because it will temporarily. Believe that. Yeah. I've definitely found mm-hmm. myself questioning a lot, and that just comes back to the question as to why you're doing what you're doing. Anyway, we've ventured out into all kinds of stuff. We do performance art things. We do experimental like puppet theater stuff. Uh, we've had burlesque dances and homemade instruments and experimental video and all this and just using that platform as a means to just facilitate freedom in art because unfortunately there are lots of communities and lots of genres and subgenres and so on and so forth in art that at least I've come across and I wouldn't be surprised if many others have as well that if you don't fit X, Y, and Z then you're not playing or you're not showing or you're not a part of the group to try to just annihilate that completely and just have it be completely wide open part of a collective called Corvallis Experiments and Noise uh, we post our events on Facebook I have an Instagram called Feral Antics that just documents uh shows that we've done just pictures from shows and artists that have played and yeah we're all about just bringing in everybody and finding a way to uh, have them be able to do what they want to do and somehow mold it into what everybody else is doing on a bill or yeah. uh, as part of an event and then just grow in community from there let's wrap this up or at least wrap the room You've been listening to Dispatches from Mount Kaz, conversations from a creative community, recorded and produced at Mount Kaz Studios in Corvallis, Oregon. Check out the show notes for music credits and more information about the people and things we talked about.